Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. On the unceded homelands of the Mohican people known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community, I'm Blaze Bryant. Over the next hour, we are going to hear a two-part conversation about accessible voting for people with disabilities. The first part of our voting conversation about accessibility is with Cliff Perez, the systems advocate at the Independent Living Center of the Hudson Valley. Cliff has been working on accessible voting issues for many years, and I appreciate him joining me here on Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you so much, Cliff. You're very welcome, Blaze. I'm very very thankful to be here with you in in discussing something as important as uh, HAVA. Absolutely. So, HAVA, which you just mentioned, the Help America Vote Act, what did it – so give us the the short and sweet of – when it got passed, and what it took to get it passed. Well, the Help America Vote Act is very interesting, especially when you look at it from the point of view that it came about not because of people with disabilities, which is what most people with disabilities probably think, that HAVA is a result of people with disabilities doing advocacy and pushing for voting law to address inadequacies of people with disabilities. Yeah, well, unfortunately, that's not the case. It's not. The, the reason that HAVA came about, obviously, had input from the disability community because the disability community had been working, actually, on a bill to address voting accessibilities in the 1990s. But the real reason HAVA happened was not because of that. The real reason HAVA happened was because of what happened in Florida during the 2000 election when there was a few hundred votes that went uncounted or challenged uh, because of the voting chads in Florida. There were all these problems. And so there was all this uncertainty as to exactly who voted for whom. So as a result of that, the government decided that we needed a, 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 a new voting law that would provide more reliability within the voting system. So their, their focus was more on reliability than accessibility. But they figured while they were doing this, as they were trying to address the reliability that fell apart during the 2000 election in Florida, they figured, well, let's throw in some accessibility since some people had been working on this since the 90s anyway. So. As usual, for people with disabilities, it was an afterthought to throw that in there to um, provide some means for people with disabilities to be able to have access to the voting system. And when I mean the voting system, it's supposed to be for the whole voting system, not just voting in and of itself. And one of the things that HAVA calls for is the establishment of this election uh, advisory uh, commission, I think is the name. and it's comprised of four commissioners, two Democrats and two Republicans. What's great about this uh, advisory, if that's what it is, it's a, a election advisory commission. And they collect, they're supposed to be put out an annual report that, that su- is supposed to lay out all the issues throughout the states, what problems they had in voting, um, how they can be improved. And I'm not really sure anybody's using that. They're there to provide states with assistance. Um, so I'm not really sure whether New York is using them or not. And New York, like every other state, too, is supposed to put a report together every year for this uh, Election Assistance Commission, um, letting them know how voting has taken place in that state, what problems that they had. So we might want to take 
you know, we, we may want to, as advocates, want to take a look then uh, uh, at this plan that the state is supposed to do every year. Gotcha. And so, so the other thing about how I need to tell you since, wait, since you asked about the beginning, yeah. since I said it had a lot to do with the Florida thing, unfortunately in New York state, New York is very resistant apparently to try to make their services and programs more accessible to people with disabilities. I say that because we had to sue them more than once just to get them to implement HAVA. And in 1910 or in 1910, I mean, 2010 and 2013, um, there was legislation being passed and it was passed in 2013 by the Senate that allowed the lever machines to be still be used at local government when they already knew that the whole idea of HAVA was to get rid of these old machines because people couldn't use them. And they were too stupid to think that perhaps we should take the same view for local elections, which they didn't. So we had to vigorously advocate to ensure that lever machines were removed even from the local governments and try to provide more access so that people could have access to the voting process at all levels of government, not just federal. So technically then, since the Help America Vote Act or HAVA was passed in 2002, the whole voting system violated the ADA, Americans with Disabilities Act, which was passed in 1990, for 12 years because there were voting machines that were not accessible, right? At least in terms um, of the levers. You could look at it that way. You could look at it that, that way. I mean, from the point, you could easily make it, you could easily have made an argument or, or, or any attorney, if they so choose, could have made an argument that by not having um, a, a voting system that is accessible to people with disabilities, they were violating Title II of the Americans with Disabilities Act because that's a statewide thing. However, you could make the other argument that HAVA was specifically federal, and because it's specifically federal, then it did not violate the ADA, just to be very clear. Oh, that's that's an interesting one, which I'm going to be honest, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but well, that's just the well, way I think. because the ADA does not apply. The ADA does not apply to the federal government. It's that simple. Oh. If the ADA applied to the federal government, then all this would be moot, but it does not. See, again, that's probably one of those things people think that it does, but it does not. It does not apply to the federal government. So the federal government, so In a fact, law passed by the federal government does not impact the federal government. Well, they didn't, they didn't write themselves in there like that. They had to do it piecemeal. For example, in Title V, I believe that in Title V, you'll find a phrase in the ADA that talks about the Congress is uh, under the Americans with Disabilities Act. Because if it wasn't mentioned, then it wouldn't be. And be, the fact that it's in Title V, anything that's in Title V, which is the last title, means that it includes everything within the Act, one, two, three, four, and five, which is not the case when you have things in Title I or Title II, they're only specifically for that title. But Title V implies to the whole law as a whole. And I believe also the White House got put in there um, to address accessibility. But overall, generally speaking, it does not apply to the federal government. Well, I'm really glad that you broke that stuff down because it is one of those things most people, myself included at one point, would have thought, well, hey, it kind of falls under the, that umbrella, but it does not. Uh, Cliff Perez with me, Blaze Bryant, here on our voting special here on Hudson Mohawk Magazine. So it took a little bit for New York to implement HAVA. Now, talk about 
Cliff, the Board of Elections and the absolute mess that it is with the two different machines and, well, how things kind of played out that way. Well, as I said, at the time, at the time when states were trying to implement HABA after its passage, you know, I think it was signed into law on October 29th of 2002. And I think by 2006 or 07, I think 06, states were supposed to already have a plan in place as to what they were going to be doing, how they were going to implement HAVA. Um, New York, of course, ignored all that. They had nothing, um, which is what I said earlier. They had to be sued more than once in order for New York to become compliant with the Help America Vote Act. While all that was happening, there were much, there were many hearings that took place. I attended almost all of the hearings. And, some of them I even brought my grandchildren to so they can learn about this. Um, and at one point we locked, we like we had a meeting at the legislature with all with many of the legislators, and we were so fed up with 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 everything that was going on in New York with the implement with the lack of implementing the Olmstead, which is to have people with disabilities live integrated into community, that we blocked the room with wheelchairs and would not allow the legislators to leave the room for a long time. They were very unhappy about that. Um, but those are the, all the fights that we were doing in New York just to trying to get things to address accessibility and rights for people with disabilities. And HAVA was no exception. We fought very hard for that. As I said, we also had to fight to make sure that at the local level, since HAVA is a federal law, not a local law. In other words, the 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 the, um, the, the, the Help America Vote Act is only for federal elections. It's not really applied not really, it doesn't apply, period, to state or local elections. The principles should apply because the principles are the same no matter what, to, to ensure that people with disabilities have access to the voting system. It's unfortunate that we have to have this div division between federal because it should apply to all voting. But that's why we have to fight even after that in New York State because they weren't wise enough to figure out that if we needed a federal law to make federal uh, law uh, voting more accessible, that we should probably take a, a note from that and make sure that all of our elections in New York are, are were accessible. But New York didn't do that. And so we had to advocate very, very forcefully to get the lever machines taken away from local government. And even to this day, I'm not sure that local governments use accessible machines to increase uh, or maximize the ability of people with disabilities in local areas to actually vote locally. So we're always talking about, oh, people don't vote enough at the local level. But at the same time, though, the Board of Elections isn't doing very much to help people or encourage people to vote, clearly not doing that. Well, not the Board of Elections, because they don't deal with local government. But whoever deals with that, because it divides. If it's schools, I believe it's the education system that deals with that. And I'm not really sure. But the point is, there ought to be more continuity and we don't have that in the state of New York. Right. Point being, county governments are not doing enough. No, because, you see, again, that's another problem. HAVA makes it very clear about things that should be done, but because, unfortunately, the laws in this country allow states to do what they want to. So it's almost, it's almost you have to say to yourself, well, then what's the point of federal law when federal law will allow states to do what they want to? And voting is a big example of this. So you've got all this great federal laws to address voting inadequacies so to increase accessibility, to diminish discrimination at the federal level, but yet we do nothing. We do nothing to prevent the states 
from passing laws that prevent people from voting. We don't do we do nothing to stop states from purchasing or not working together to ensure that they have a system that is truly accessible and usable by a majority of people with disabilities. None of that happens. That's the basic problem here. So, and then in New York, you got this thing called the New York State Board of Elections who are, that are useless. They have no power whatsoever. They can't tell local counties of what to do in terms of how they conduct their voting. So what purpose do they serve? That's not clear to me. In other states, they have a secretary of state that has a lot more control over what happens with the voting system. We don't have that in New York. And so the in the final analysis, the local uh, folks, the county election people, they get to basically this, do whatever they want to. They get to basically purchase whatever they want to, as long as it's whatever, you know, as long as the machine meets some particular criteria, they can buy whatever they want to, which is how we ended up in Europe with two different machines, the ESNS and the image cast. And unfortunately, because of that, if we only had one machine, it would make it so much easier, one, to purchase. It might e even bring down the cost because we're all purchasing one machine. And two, it would help to see if there are any difficulties, any problems that come around, that come about. It would be much easier to solve because you would solve it for all of them because they're all using the same machine. So that's the problem we had then. And hopefully we won't have that problem again. But here we are one more time trying to address this issue of New York State, thinking about what what's the next sort of generation of accessible voting machines will we purchase. Cliff Perez with me, Blaze Bryant here on Hudson Mohawk Magazine. When you were initially advocating for the one machine and to have a secretary of state instead of a board of elections, what was the rationale you were hearing that we needed a board of elections and two machines? Well, the issue with the Board of Elections is New York State decided to do with the Board of Elections kind of like what they did with the with the education thing, you know, this Board of Regents. The, the idea was to depoliticize the, the, the position. Right? So the, the idea was to have this New York State Board of Elections and that somehow that would be taken away from, you know, like this whole political, like you have a Secretary of State that gets elected, it gets all political. They thought that maybe this would get them away from that. And maybe it did, but I, I can't answer that. But one thing it clearly did do it and make them inept. They, 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 they don't, they don't really, they don't really do anything and I, and they don't have the power to do anything. So I don't know what the problem, what the, you know, how, how to solve that other than there has to be fresh legislation to address that issue. The part about the two different machines comes from the fact that I said earlier about that local counties have almost all the power in the world as, as far as what they do. So there's no authority in the state of New York that can say to them, you know what, we should just purchase this one machine. This is the best machine there is. We should just buy one, tell the local government that's what we're doing and it's done. It doesn't work that way. They can't tell them anything. So, and then there was an issue too at the time where the image cast was certified, I believe before the ESNS, and it was this whole issue that if they didn't purchase machines um, now that they wouldn't be able to purchase them at all. I mean, they were basically put, put the, putting, putting them up against the wall. That is the state government was pushing local governments up against the wall about purchasing these machines. All of this is, I think, is a result of the fact that we had to sue New York several times in order for them to comply. So now it gets to be late because we had to do all this. And now it took them so long to certify these machines. Then they certified the image cast, which is the worst machine of the two, but somehow 
We don't know, but at the last minute, that machine got certified. That's why most counties in New York own that machine. So was there some underhanded money thing going on? I don't know, but it leads you to think that maybe there was. And so the ESNS uh, Automark machine, which is a much better machine, I think, than most people with disabilities, most people who have used both machines will clearly tell you this. That's the machine we should have bought, but that's the machine we did not buy. And those are the reasons why. Right. And just to set this up as we now kind of turn locally here, in Albany County, because I lived in Albany County up until last year, there is the auto mark machine that, as a completely blind voter, is very accessible. And truthfully, because here in Rensselaer County, the two times I have tried to vote, the machine was not hooked up, and we were getting the the runaround of a million excuses, which I'm sure you have had to deal with, Cliff, since you live in Rensselaer County, and uh, they use the, the image cast machine. So is it is it just because Rensselaer County decided to be cheap about it and Albany County decided to do what would be the most logical, sustainable thing to do in terms of why the setup is the way it is? Well, remember what I said about the fact that the the image class was the first machine that was certified. And remember I said that basically the counties were being threatened about uh, getting on board and buying these machines. So yes, the image class was cheaper. On top of all this, I specifically told the commissioners here in Rensselaer not to purchase that machine. I specifically told them that the ESNS was a much more accessible machine. But the combination of that, and as I said, the combination meaning that they were being pushed by the government that they needed to, that's the biggest reason why they purchased a lot of image cast machines, which is what most counties did. Albany must have been late. And by that time, the ESNS had been certified. So now they had a real option. Like the first time, they didn't have an option. All they had was the image cast. And, and then they certified ESNS later. Now, why they would certify a machine that's not as good as the other one first is completely beyond my understanding. But that's what happened. Gotcha. So take people through what it's like to vote on the image cast and why it's not as good as as the automark machine because you've been able to um, use them i have not <laughs> yeah well i mean look the image cast you can anybody you can vote on the image cast it, it, it isn't like you can't vote in, and, I'm, and i'm not saying i'm not trying to say that it's not accessible what i'm saying is that in terms of us meaning people with disabilities who deal with different types of technology that are accessible some more than others all that i'm saying is that the Automark, the ESNS, is more accessible than the image cast. And the image cast works just not as well. One of the and one big problem about the image cast is the image cast com- comes combined with the voting machine, the accessible voting machine that you are using as a person with a disability, and then on the other side of it, the scanner. So they're connected. So even though you're voting, there are all these people still coming by when you're voting. To put their scan, to put their ballot in, because that's the way that's set up. Unlike Automark, where the Automark is one machine and then the scanning is another, and you go to another place. That's the way it should be. It shouldn't be together. But 
the image cache is like that together. The other thing that makes it worse is not so much the machine. The other thing that makes it worse is the fact that Rensselaer's Board of Elections people don't give a crap about anybody and they don't listen to anybody. And that's why you go into the board of when you go to vote in Rensselaer, because I, I can't really speak about voting in Albany and all that because I don't vote there. But in speaking to people, um, they had a much better, friendlier reaction when they would go to vote than I have had. I've written several articles over the years in newspapers all over the Capital District about how badly I've been treated when I go to vote in Rensselaer County. Um, and I have talked to both uh, of our commissioners about this. They understand totally. They just don't care. And so when you go to vote in Rensselaer, for the most part, what you will find, one, you will find the machine is not even plugged in or is not on. Two, you will find that the people working there have no idea how to work the machine. And three, you will waste a whole lot of time because they're going to have to end up courting the Board of Elections, who ends up taking about 20 to 30 minutes just to get there. So now you got to sit there and wait for them to get there so they can fix the machine that they have never bothered to really properly train the poll workers to do that themselves. And if they had done that, then they wouldn't have to call the Board of Elections for them to come and fix the machine. And even before that, they had just bought the right machine. They wouldn't have to go through this at all. That's what we have to deal with here in Rensselaer. And that's also why Rensselaer has been sued also even more than other places because the Board of Elections in Rensselaer just refuses to do anything to cooperate. I wrote to them many, many times saying to them that the Independent Living Center of the Hudson Valley was willing to work with them to help them train poll workers so that they understood about people with disabilities and adequate, you know, uh, etiquette to deal with people with disabilities, maybe understand more about the machines working together. And they refused every single time. For full disclosure, I helped draft a letter to the Board of Elections that you and I worked on when I was working at the Independent Living Center of the Hudson exactly. Valley six years ago. And I exactly. wonder, yeah, I just wonder why they're not held accountable. And does it go back to the fact that there's a board of elections, which maybe That's I'm exactly looking at it, this right? wrong. Yeah. Maybe I'm just looking at this wrong cliff that the board of elections was meant to be set up as like some sort of governing body. And it's just, not it just essentially seems like figureheads exactly. and positions. That's exactly right. It is not. They have no authority. That's the problem. Is it? However, the legislation was written, they have really no authority over local uh, election boards. All they can do is give them what they call either suggestions, you know, recommendations, ideas. But in the end, they have no real enforced power to tell local governments what to do. And if and if I'm wrong and they do, well, then they've never used it and they've never told me that they do. And they darn well better be uh, using it here. We've got about five and a half minutes left here. Cliff, what do you see as the future of accessible voting for people with disabilities? Well, for me, and again, I... I say again, you don't know this, but I view things a little bit different than most people. I think the future of voting is, is remote voting, uh, remote voting, meaning that you don't have to go to a poll site. Now, some people will say, my God, we fought so hard to make poll sites accessible so we can go to poll sites. I'm not saying 
that you can go to poll sites. And I'm not saying that the future will get rid of them. What I am saying, though, is the remote voting is going to be happening in the future. This pandemic just proved that um, with this whole idea of having a mailing system, which, of course, is not accessible to a, a, a huge amount of people with disabilities. And they kept calling it an easy way to vote. And and quite frankly, if you uh, talk to security people, um, they can't they can't seem to make up their minds about anything. But they will tell you that mailing is an extremely insecure system for votes. And that's what we did in the past election. So as we go forward, this remote voting idea is going to it's going to grow. Um, and I have pushed very hard to make sure that we have electronic voting or some kind of electronic voting to address accessibility for people with disabilities. Um, because of all of this, we had a case in the state of New York. It wasn't law. It was uh, more of a, uh, it was a case that took place um, that uh, after, after, after the case was done and New York lost, um, the decision was that the New York State Board of Elections needed to provide a ballot electronically so that people can then take that ballot and vote and in the uh, leisure of their own home or whatever on their computer, we can do this now in New York. And that's a result of all, a lot of the advocacy we have done in this particular case. So that's kind of remote voting that that got addressed here in New York. I'm hoping that as we continue going forward, we're going to get to a point where we can really do electronic voting. That is, you can vote either on your phone or your tablet or whatever. And that way, that will provide the ultimate freedom, the ultimate privacy, and the ultimate accessibility for voting. Right, right. Now, some people might be familiar with HR1, which was the, the John Lewis um, right. civil rights Act now. There was disability. Op there's opposition in the disability community about that legislation. Why? It seemed as if it was dealing with disability things again, like, uh, like behind, you know, like a, an afterthought. It it didn't seem, and it definitely didn't seem to be addressing remote voting. And at the time, that was a really big thing that we we're talking about was remote voting, and I don't think it addressed that. What can people do to be more informed and be more involved about the future of accessible voting because we know the reality the people need to be part of the solution yes no you are correct um you know the strongest thing and i really mean the strongest thing people can do is to simply um see about themselves becoming poll workers i mean the only way you can really know about a system is to be in it and we're basically somewhat outside of it in a sense. But if you become a poll worker, you're somewhat in there. I would encourage people to try becoming. And, and quite frankly, how cool it would be when people went to vote, they found that people who are the poll workers, some of them are people with disabilities. Right. And, and also the idea, and, the, and also the idea, maybe if you had people with disabilities at the poll site helping they would not be calling the machine the handicap machine and they wouldn't be telling people that they can't vote in the machine because it's only for handicapped people when the machines are for anyone who wishes to use them, whether they have a disability or not. So become a poll worker. Um, get in touch with your board of elections. Get to You should know who your commissioners are at your board of elections um, and they should know you. Um, th that's all part of being involved. Know their office. Find out where your board of election office is. There's supposed to be a, an 800 number. I don't know if the city of New York has this, but it says that in the HAVA legislation that each state is supposed to have uh, an 800 number for complaints if uh, if they have issues with voting. And 
I don't know whether New York has that or not. So you may want to look into that as you're doing these interviews. Think about this. We have a 70% unemployment rate amongst the disability community. Poll worker mm -hmm. experience could only be beneficial on a resume, could it not? Exactly. Any of that. I mean, you're learning so many things you learn as a poll worker. You learn about election stuff. You actually even learn how systems work. I think it's a very good thing to do. Absolutely. Well, to find out more about what the Independent Living Center of the Hudson Valley does, go to ilchv.org. Cliff Perez, systems advocate with the Independent Living Center. I always learn from you and cannot thank you enough for your time talking about accessible voting for people with disabilities. Not a problem. Always glad to do that, Blaze, and it's a real pleasure talking to you as well. And we will have part two of our conversation in just a minute here on Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Blaze Bryant. You are listening to Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network. WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. Part two of our accessible voting conversation is with Keith Gergi, who is the systems advocate for the Resource Center for Accessible Living in Kingston, New York. Keith, welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you so much for taking some time to talk with me about accessible voting for people with disabilities. Thanks, Blaze. Good to be here. Appreciate it. So let's start with your experience and uh, how do you vote and any issues that you may have encountered or any solutions you've found along the way? Right. So just, I guess, as a background, um, I am a 31-year-old uh, male, quadriplegic, so I am paralyzed from the neck down. So to give the audience uh, an idea of what I'm dealing with and coming from is primarily physical immobility. So if I go out to the polls pre-pandemic, that's what I did. I used the ballot marking device in Ulster County, which here is the ImageCast, uh, Dominion ImageCast machine uh, with uh, the associated Sip and Puff device. And basically look at a computer screen and through a sequence of Sips and Puffs, I select my races on the ballot and listening to audio on a headset kind of tells me what to do to advance through the race. And well, and then it prints and it's scanned. But uh, that's just part of it. That's the ideal. It doesn't always work out that way. Sometimes there's printer jamming, etc. That's one way. And if not, I do absentee ballot. Okay. Can you explain how the sip and puff technology works? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it is plugged into a what looks like a remote control, the sip and puff device. And the sip and puff is mounted to my wheelchair so that I can reach it with my mouth. And it essentially acts as a two two switch device so two inputs the sip will either select or deselect your 
uh, race and the puff, depending on how it's programmed, the other input will push you through the next uh, candidate or race. So usually it goes race by race, candidate by candidate. So the, uh, the program is kind of isolated in each thing and you run through one at a time with uh, two options, by either selecting or moving forward. Interesting. And like, are you able to control the speed of the, the ballot based on right. how yeah. you sip and so, puff? Cause I, I really truthfully, Keith don't know a lot about how the whole sip and puff uh, stuff works, even though I work yeah. in independent living. Uh, that's just right. one of those things I don't know. <laughs> that's right. I should have mentioned. So at the beginning of every session with the BMT accessible um, session, whether you're using a sip and puff or um, paddle switches or just the computer monitor to make it bigger. Um, it will go through a preview of speed and volume for the audio. And so you can select how fast you want the, the instructions to be read out loud and how loud that will be. And then it goes into the, uh, the race. And it does take a while. I mean, running well, a full ballot could take... Um, not counting setup, like the seven puff on my chair, maybe five to 10 minutes, um, where it would take an able-bodied person, you know, 10 seconds maybe to fill out their ballot. So right now it's uh, an exercise in democracy as well as making sure that poll workers are, you know, aware that these machines exist and should be ready for anyone to need it. So it's a, it's a democratic exercise and an advocacy one. That's how I feel. For sure. Keith Gergie with me, Blaze Bryant, here on Hudson Mohawk Magazine as we're talking about accessible voting for people with disabilities. What are your experiences like dealing with the poll workers? Have they been, you know, one one particular way or have they kind of been mixed? Um, that's a good question. I have my standard polling site and I've also been to uh, what was at the time the early voting site. Um, in the town of Ulster that's moved to another area I have not been at. And the I have not actually been to a poll in several years now since the pandemic started. So I've been doing absentee ballot more and we could go into that. But um, poll workers, as I said back in the past, um, so I have experience with two different sites. Um, they seem to, in my experience, need uh, a little help with um, what, how, because they have to put things on my chair, so some are more nervous to, you know, touch your equipment, so there's a social difference, a kind of uh, attitudinal barriers, maybe, depending who you're working with, and then on the other side, I have someone I'm familiar with at my local polling site, so depending on how many historical interactions I've had with them, it's kind of a building of a relationship, which is good and bad, I suppose. In the beginning, you know, if they're not regularly using these BMD sessions, accessible sessions, um, you know, you'd have to ask all of the Ulster County poll workers about their experiences. I don't know how many have had to do an accessible session, but um, I don't think it's 100%. Yeah, likely not. <laughs> I mean, probably not just an Ulster County thing, but no matter where you go, I would imagine. Yeah, I was being generous. <laughs> I figured you were. I mean, because even here in Rensselaer County, where where I vote, 
and have lived for the past year, uh, my experience with the poll workers is very different here than what it was in in Albany County. Uh, Albany County, they were uh, much more uh, friendly and pleasant, and the machines were set up, and it was the auto mark. And here in Rensselaer County, it's the image cast uh, like you use in Ulster County where it's not set up, and the poll workers just don't seem to care. Yeah, there's... Again, it's I feel like it's an in, uh, individual by individual basis with this unfortunate. I am in a very large power wheelchair, and I'm obvious when I enter the polling site that this is going to be, um, you know, they recognize me as I'm coming. Sure, and I mean, what what's what's that like for you? You know, going in and you might not know what you're getting into. Um, it's a mixed bag. Uh, once again, uh, depending on who is working and the status of the machine, you know, I, I can't tell until I'm in the actual session. You know, I've had times when the printer has jammed after a positive session. I've uh, not even been able to begin a session because something with the sip and puff is not registering with the computer that it's plugged into because possibly it's damaged. Um, so there's like a full range of experiences there. Right. Now, now back to the sip and puff, cause I've heard a couple of different things. You can either use the one that is provided with the machine or just bring your own. Now, obviously we're looking at before COVID the modern day BC, if you will, did you bring your own or did you use the one that was provided? I have never relied on my own sip and puff. Um, I um, I use actually my head to drive my chair. Uh, there's nowadays technology, thank God, um, has opened the door to mobility devices. So there are many quadriplegics, upper mobility impairments that use sip and puff or head arrays or even proportional drives with their chin. So I actually do not own a sip and puff um, device. I use mostly head-controlled devices, infrared, motion-controlled, and voice-controlled technology. Oh, so you can drive your chair just by moving your head? Yeah, it's a touch-sensitive. So the what's traditionally the headrest that I'm leaning against right now also acts as a touch-sensitive drive control. Wow. Okay. That I'll, I'd love to talk with you more more about that offline because it's absolutely fascinating and i could easily you know go down a a very you know deep rabbit hole with my own curiosity about this uh keith gergi with me blaze bryant here on on hudson mohawk magazine as we you know get back to the accessible uh voting piece so since covid you've used an absentee ballot explain I mean, we we heard from Cliff Perez a few minutes ago about like the the general process that you fill it out and uh, can can print it out. But you know, you know how how do you do things? Right. So I would say, well, it depends. I, I'm kind of uh, OCD. So uh, early on, before the primary, even I go to the State Board of Election website and I fill out the form to 
request an accessible absentee ballot and come, I don't know, two weeks, three weeks before the election, whether it's the primary or the general, um, I receive an email um, from the county board of election and they send me a PDF that is uh, a ballot that's specific to my district all the way down to the township and all the races, you know, assembly district 103, Senate district 41 now. Um, and then I, you know, just click with the usual way I do it on my computer with the head array and dwell clicker. And then when everything's done, I save as, put a little name on it, put it in my voting folder. Then I go to print after saving and I need someone else to turn my printer on and then I print out the piece of paper and at that point usually it's been my father the last couple of years will fold it and put it in the um, oath envelope and then in a mailing envelope which is mailed separately by the board of election once along with the email they also send you in physical form a paper uh, envelope prepaid for a return of the electronically and then printed selected and then printed um, accessible ballot, which is like an eight by 11 normal sheet of paper. So uh, that's a, you know, they know when it's, it's not the same ballot. So we could talk about privacy concerns. You know, you kind of, obviously the board of election officials going to know that this is uh, a, a a disabled individual's absentee ballot versus uh, the large, larger bullet ballots that go into the scanned Dominion machine. Yeah, go ahead and talk about the privacy concerns. Um, well, I'm. It doesn't say Keith Gergi on it, but I don't know how many people are using the fillable PDF. I believe it's increasing in popularity, but um, it's not as big of a concern to me. My point being that it, you can definitely differentiate the ballot. It's not one that needs to be scanned. I believe the a board of elections official supervised by someone fills in an actual ballot after receiving this one, and then it is scanned into the machine to be tabulated like the rest. That's my understanding. Um, but furthermore, it's an issue of physical access. Um, I can't handle the paper. And I know it's an issue for others who cannot see the paper or maybe don't even own a printer. So it's somewhat more accessible and independent and private than in the past. At least I can fill my ballot on, on the computer um, on my own and then print it. But I have to have a trusted person handling it physically. So we're a step in the right direction, but not all the way. That's how I feel about the system. Well, you just answered kind of the next question I was thinking in terms of you know your your thoughts on the on the process. I mean, now you were pretty involved with with kind of the settlement of that process, right? Yes, I I'm trying to be choosy with my words and not too specific and opinionated, but I was a plaintiff, and I believe it's. Hernandez versus New York State Board of Ed, um, one of the co-plaintiffs in that suit, which was to address the um, normal absentee ballot 
is not physically accessible to individuals with disabilities, and that we were represented by a number of organizations and named plaintiffs, including Disability Rights New York and Disability Rights Advocates, two, two uh, legal, legal firms in New York that represent people with disabilities. Why did they come to this sort of term that is, and, and I agree with you, it's a very halfway process. Um, I don't know how far into it I can get, but sure. I would just say um, uh, the available technology of today. Um, you know, can, That's a good question. The online voting in New York is not an infrastructure that is in place right now that could be utilized. You know, they can't just wave a wand and create it. Um, I think they did the best they can right now in 2022, given the state of the law and the systems that we have. I'm hoping, you know, five, ten years down the road, we'll get more independent and private as we go. And this is this is a step in that direction. Very good. Uh, Keith Gergi with me, Blaze Bryant here on Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Now, there are a couple of new machines coming down the pike because the Automark and the ImageCast have reached their expiration dates, if you will. Um, there is the uh, ESNS uh, machine, and then there is this uh, Heart uh, Civics machine. Now, an interesting question here. If Keith Gergi were designing a voting machine, an accessible voting machine, what would it look like? I think there should be like standing tables where people could vote. You know, it's customarily you get like a, your standard folding table that people sit at, and those really are not accessible. I need like a good four feet of space to be able to wheel under. My chair is really big. Or at least have one table that can be raised and lowered, like a one of those uh, nice fancy desks. Um, mm. At least one of those. And then, so the machine, I think, try not to make it too complicated. Some of the sip and puff, depending on machines. I've also trialed some, uh, I think it was clear ballot in Ulster County. And that used like double sips and double puffs and different combinations. I'm just used two inputs on the image cast, so... I mean, you can do a lot with the technology you have, but when you're voting and you want it to take as little time as necessary, um, simplicity is key. But um, just for the sake of time, I don't want to get too complicated. I think Go large ahead. display, um, just intuitive, different ways to mount the sip and puff device. There have been issues in the past where they have a certain clamp that's meant for your, as you would imagine, a standard wheelchair handle like the um, circular round metal tubing. Some power wheelchairs don't even have any of those handles on them, um, depending on what type of wheelchair you're in. So there should be multiple um, mounting devices, either fixed to the machine, like there are different photography lighting mounts that could be utilized. Um, uh, a lot of content creators have all sorts of different ways to hold their cameras and things. So maybe those could be utilized a little more for ease of mounting those assistive devices that people are going to use for the accessible portion. Interesting. And then, uh, you know, what about 
just universal access in general beyond the the sip and puff? Because it sounds uh, to me like you've put plenty of thought into this. Yeah, I mean, like it's hard to speak to say visual impairness or auditory impairness. Um, you know, I, I can't say where the best place for braille is or um, other things. But my own experience, I've had trouble with mounting. I've had trouble with the printer jamming. Um, and the less, also the less complicated it is for the poll worker, the less interactions, physical setting things up. Um, there's also the headset, and as a quadriplegic, I can't move. So someone need, needs to be comfortable enough to put a headset on my um, around my ears and to have it be, you know, right, you know, around my ears so I can hear. And depending on the headset, some are harder to put on for another person than others. So all these little things you got to think of when, when you're depending on someone else who is not familiar with the individual, uh, make it as easy and user-friendly as possible. How do we address some of the issues around poll worker apprehension to deal with people with disabilities and just their perceived knowledge gap about the machines in general? I'm not inside the training manual of what Board of Election poll workers doing and how heavy the disability sensitivity training is. I'm not even sure what they would call it but that's what I would call it. And um, so I would just encourage Board of Elections to actually have um, residents with disabilities that they know of and who might be comfortable included in training opportunities. Let the person with um, perhaps the actual poll worker that they're used to at their poll site work together in front of their colleagues and go through a session and so that all the other poll workers can see um, you know, a little snapshot into what one type of accessible session might be like, because there are different needs for different individuals. There are, there's the sip and puff that we've talked about. There's also a different remote control, kind of a tactile, um, sort of retro looking Nintendo controller. There are paddle switches. So there's different scenarios that someone might need to go through a poll worker. Um, so I think those types of interactions would be good in trainings um, and just having, you know, making the community, the disability community, a part of those trainings, uh, I think would be beneficial to poll workers. Yeah, and it seems like the Board of Elections, on the county level, because the, the state BOE doesn't really have much authority to do much of anything, what do you think the counties could and should be doing to get the disability community involved? I have not ever been rejected. I guess it's up to me. I have to maybe be more proactive and uh, open my calendar up to trying to get over there when they do the trainings. Um, I have other things in life that make it difficult when we're talking about disability policy. range from transportation to places as an individual using a power chair. Um, but Ulster County has been pretty good with um, accessible voting in terms of the absentee ballot process um, that was instituted after the lawsuit and things. But I think if all Board of Elections were maybe before poll trainings put out a public service announcement or press release saying these we are looking for poll workers, which they usually do, 
Also, we are encouraging members of the public interested in providing feedback during poll trainings to come visit, you know, make it more of an open, not, not that you might be wanting to be a poll worker, but maybe you would like to give your own input as to your experience with a poll worker. I, I don't know if that occurs, which, you know, that's opening a can of worms. I could see some people coming and complaining, but it could be vetted. You could sign up online, um, but that would be nice. Yeah, and much like a job description, put in a disclaimer that says something to the effect of minorities are strongly encouraged to participate. Yeah, yeah, I would get with a focus towards disability. Um, yeah, particular to the BMD. Absolutely. All right. Let's uh, in the few minutes we have left talk about what you see as the the future of accessible voting, whether that's just a couple of years down the road or even longer term? Um, just based on history, I have seen, and whether this is going to extend to voting or not um, is unknown, but I think likely is a, a higher use of electronics and digitalization. Um, we're going there with our money, we're going there with our communications and our news and all, much of what we do. So whether that is voting online or through some sort of government uh, secure server, that may be where it goes. It also may be in addition to more advanced machinery and um, artificial intelligence guided, you know, smart assistance that help you through maybe more of a a responsive voice operated privacy booth if you want to do that for voting um just more technology more so i don't i'm optimistic in the voting realm let's say that for short would you rather the state have two machines as it's currently set up or streamline things to one i've thought about this i'm i am of mixed minds. Is it better to be uniform or does the openness of all these counties being able to uh, choose their own machines kind of create this free market of voting technology? And I see pros and cons to both of those. Um, having uniformity, the state can really help with counties and vice versa. Um, but once again, I think technology does thrive in sort of this competitive landscape. So that is hard to say. I, I, I'm not ready to, to devote myself to one way or the other on that right now. So you're very open and optimistic about things. I, yes, I, I, to your specific question as to, should we go one machine uniform in the state and no others will be adopted or should it be opened up to multiple? I wouldn't want it to be a situation where it's either one or two. I would like it to be like one or here's a dozen and we're going to get all these experiences all over New York and 10 years down the road, there's going to be a really good machine in it. You know, So I don't know, maybe it's because the machines are not super fantastic and i'm like i would not pick one for new york but um 
you know, I, I'm open to the conversation, though. Well, excellent. Uh, how can people find out more information about uh, what the Resource Center for Accessibility is doing? Oh, we have a website. Uh, so RCAL, R-C-A-L, this is the acronym for our center. And I have an email. You can email me. First letter, my first name, K, Gergi, G-U-R-G-U-I, at rcal.org. Um, you know, the agency, and like many other ILCs, independent living centers, are sort of like octopuses where they have a central administrative staff, CEO, director, and then they have all these different programs, systems advocacy, um, benefits advisement, service coordination, um, money follows the person, Olmstead housing. You know, some have loan closets, some have um, home care agencies, CD pass programs. So um, some of my systems advocacy never touches some of our areas, and I don't interact with certain colleagues more than others, right? You know, different levels of interaction. Um, but to your question, uh, rcal.org, or you can just email me. All right. Well, very good. Uh, we'll leave it right there. Keith Gergi, the systems advocate with the Resource Center for Accessible Living in Kingston. Uh, great to talk with you, Keith, as always. And thank you so much for a few minutes here on Hudson Mohawk Magazine talking about accessible voting. Thanks, please. The New York State Attorney General's Office has a voter hotline for people who experienced issues at their polling place. The phone number is 866-390-2992. Again, that number, 866-390-2992. You can also submit a complaint form online at ag.ny.gov. That's it for our special show about accessible voting for people with disabilities. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Blaze Bryant, who produced and engineered this episode. This program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community, for the community, and is supported by independent donations. If you value independent media, consider a gift of a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org. We want to hear from you. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Media Sanctuary, or send us an email, hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or you can even give us a call, 518-272-2390. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news and stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website. Again, that's mediasanctuary.org and on your favorite podcast platform. We appreciate you listening. I'm Blaze Bryant. You're listening to Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network.